HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Actually, recording off-site today at the Star Chef's 2010 ICC. That's the International Culinary Congress. Um, lucky enough to have Jordan Kahn, about to open up Red Medicine, out in Beverly Hills, California with me. An old friend. I actually met him at Varietal, New York. Um, uh, short-lived but very emphatic restaurant <laughs> that Jordan got to express his pastry prowess, his plate in such a way that I don't think New York or even the country had seen before with a real understanding and basis in the arts. Um, Here at Star Chefs, he just did a funny little um, class about color. Can you explain a little bit about the uh, idea behind that? (laughs) Sure. Um, Well, we, you know, Antoinette asked me to do a demonstration um, for a workshop and usually they're sort of kind of serious and it's usually about like the chef you know, showing you how to do something that you've never done and like, you know, the, oh, isn't this cool or isn't this interesting? Well, you shouldn't you be impressed kind of thing. And um, I wanted it to be interactive, but also like really fun and for people to get something out of it without it being super sort of serious and over the top. So what we <clears throat> what we did is we started exploring, you know, how it's, it's the old, you know, the old... Uh, it's like it's a subject that's been talked about for for years and years, but it's how color perceives you know how color perception changes your your you know sense of taste and smell and things like that. So um, we basically just made a, a bunch of mise en place purees, mousses, cakes, crumbs, nougatines, everything. Um, we made it. We brought it with us, uh, and we made everybody put on these visors that had the the color of the visor was red, and it was such a saturated red that when you looked when you were wearing it, you couldn't see anything else and everything was deep, deep red, and it skewed the color such that everything just looked like shades of red. You couldn't tell what the color of anything was. Um, also, to play a second trick on people, we changed the colors of certain mise en place <laughs> to what it was supposed to be. So, banana puree was green, and, you know, uh, 
peach puree was re- bright red, but also peach puree was bright yellow. So, you know, we, we sort of, you know, we had green ice cream uh, flavored with romaine lettuce. So, you know, we did a lot of familiar stuff and some unfamiliar stuff to sort of throw people off. We did. So it's actually kind of like the opposite of seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, and so at, at the end of it, people just sort of, they, they got to, or excuse me, during it, um, they split off into groups. They got to take as much mise en place as they wanted. They tasted it. They interacted with it. They, you know, could put it in a, they could whip it. They could, you know, whisk it. They could, you know, do whatever they wanted with it, bake it, um, you know, basically make desserts based on what they think the components are. And it was really interesting to hear people's, you know, some people are like, oh, this ice cream is black sesame, or oh, I think this is, you know, coconut, and I think this is that. And, you know, then when they took their visors off, they realized what the colors were. And, uh, you know, pretty, pretty interesting. Um, I think it w- was pretty successful. And what was that analogy you made to orange juice at the beginning? So, uh, b- back in... Um in 1970, there was a, a study done, um, the uh, Journal of um, uh, Consumer Research, uh, basically that they did tests on people where they they took different, you know, they took orange juice and they colored the same orange juice differently, and then they separately took orange juice and they changed the sugar content. And people were saying that the flavors and the oranges were changing, like you know, there was a much bigger variance in flavor based on the ones that had different in color but not difference in sugar level so you taste two orange juices next together that are the exact same color but one has a lot less sugar in it and then the other one doesn't and they thought that that was pretty normal but then you have two orange juices that are the exact same but with different colors and like wow this one's way more sour this one's way more sweet you know so really explores like how people perceive things you know which is I mean that's something that like the you know the candy industry has been working on forever and you know industrial food like making what we think is delicious right like, you know, Heinz came out with the uh, colored ketchups a few years ago. <laughs> disgusting, yeah. And they're disgusting, but like, but they weren't. They're, they're just ketchup. Like they're yeah. just, you know, that I told people at the beginning of the demo what prompted it was actually crystal clear Pepsi, which to this day is still one of my favorite drinks. <laughs> yeah. It's delicious. You can't get it. And, you know, people completely rejected it. They were, they didn't like it. They said, oh, it tastes like lemon lime, blah, blah, blah. I think SNL did a skit about crystal clear gravy at a point to mock it because it was <laughs> such a phenomenon. Right. Yeah. I actually remember that. It's hilarious. <laughs> Um, but, you know, it was like, and even as a, as a little kid, like, you know, they came out in 1992. I was, you know, nine. And I was like, you guys know this is the same shit, right? <laughs> this is the exact same product that doesn't have food coloring in it. Like, this is idiotic. I don't, I'm not going to, it's like that great scene from Zoolander. Like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Yeah. You know, like, it's true. So we wanted, you know, we wanted people to have fun with it. And um, everybody seemed to respond really well. Yeah. And it was interesting because Jordan actually had a, a big poster board which he wrote two words on uh, palette versus palette which seemingly are the same word but actually very different um, what do you define each palette as well there's you know palette in terms of the color palette p-a-l-e-t-t-e um, you know that basically I, I put it up there because you know it's sort of a, a really cool um, there's these these similarities um, in these you know I'm not speaking very well right now. You can edit this, right? <laughs> no, not at all. Fuck. <laughs> Fuck. And you can curse too because it's uh, online. It's, oh, it's yeah. online. <laughs> Wonderful. All, uh, anyway, so, you know, like, 
and then obviously palette referring to your tongue so you know palette and color versus palette on your tongue like two things that should go hand in hand but when you skew one of them it, it really uh, changes your perception you know I mean I also had these people put on the red goggles you know 20 minutes before they got to see and taste and play, play with the food so really got they really were seeing red for a long time and after through prolonged like when you just put it on and then you start tasting it like your senses are there but like when you've when you're seeing only like this deep deep red for you know 45 minutes it starts to starts to mess with you a little bit so are you interested in maybe eliminating other senses like having a dinner without smell I mean, I'm not about, it, it's not about sort of, you know, eliminating or, you know, making people, you know, oh, uh, heighten your other senses and things like that. That's all certainly interesting. I'm not sure that I would do a dinner like that because, quite frankly, the, one of the best parts about the meal is the smell. I mean, I could, I could, you, I would much rather be able to taste and smell my food and see it, um, even though color is really important to me. But, you know, this was just a way that, uh, I guess, for years I've been battling with, you know, getting into arguments with people about food coloring and, you know, let's say I make a sweet potato ice cream and I add two drops of orange food coloring to it. Most chefs would be like, oh, that's bullshit. Like, oh, we don't add any colorings or additives. You know, our food's all natural, blah, blah, blah. It's like, but they have no problem boiling down animal bones and using gelatin to put in their dessert. Like, that's not really not I mean it's natural but it's not really like obviously it has it comes came from a natural point like a natural point at some point in its life but that doesn't really to me as a pastry chef that doesn't really make any more or less sense than using food coloring to augment it's not like we're taking something that's white and coloring it red to make it taste like raspberry we're taking raspberry puree that maybe is light pink or not quite red enough and you add one or two drops and it makes it a really deep vibrant color and so when people see that on the plate and when they eat it they're like wow that is super raspberry it's unbelievable you know and then we give them the same sorbet that's lighter in color like ah oh, the flavor is kind of you know well it's kind of like trying to retain its uh, purity in color uh, which is hard to do sometimes when you cook with certain ingredients Jordan and I were actually just talking about uh, an interesting occurrence called synesthesia, which is a reinterpretation of senses almost with another sense. So you're smelling color, or you know you're you're seeing flavor. Right. Um, and you were just talking about an article that you had read. Yeah, I mean, it basically uh, it, it's how there, there's a, a certain it's extremely rare, but in certain people, sometimes the the brain the senses get mixed and so like like michael was saying you know you can when you say a number when you see a number like it's the number is a color in your brain like i know that the number two is pink you know it's very strange and there was a certain gentleman that i was reading uh who happened with food and there's a few people that it happens with food and every time he ate chicken he saw the color blue every time he ate green beans he saw the color orange like you know that obviously is a very sort of unique and rare kind of thing but it, again it's still kind of interesting how how your how your senses you know can fuck with each other basically yeah and and it's not universal i mean it's it kind of inherent to, to the person how they interpret but yet we have overall flavor profiles of certain things it's true you know i mean you have if i give you a bowl of yellow jello what color is, what flavor is it to you probably banana 
And Probably lemon, yeah. See, but banana and lemon are very different. You yeah. Know? Is that bowl of jello going to be sour? Is it going to be sweet? Is it going to be passion fruit, lemon? Is banana, you know, like there's, in everybody, when they look at it, like the, ver- you know, whether you're aware of it or not, like your instincts tell you like what it's going to be before you try it. You know, so uh, it's kind of, it's something that I've always been really interested in and it's, and it's really interesting how, uh, you know, how all that kind of plays in together. You know, because a lot of, a lot of, I don't want to say naturalists, but a lot of people, you know, like, oh, you know, you look at their food and it's not terribly pretty. Like, oh, my food's not very beautiful, but it tastes great. It's like, well, yes, but also it needs to be beautiful. It doesn't need to be beautiful, like tortured into purees and all these different modern techniques. But, you know, if you're doing something naturally, it should still look like what it is, you know? Uh, It's true. You eat with your eyes. Um, You kind of carry this mantra with you, though, about dissonance rather than the universal. Um, Spawn from Chopin. Can you explain? Sure. Um, the The name of the workshop was uh, a coloristic use of the dissonance, and a, a, a writer a many a long time ago um, wrote that Chopin is a, a master of the uh, coloristic use of the dissonance. Which, effectively, dissonance is just sort of another word for you know describing something that is not. Um, that's not parallel, something that maybe is a little bit skewed or a little unusual or, you know, out of the ordinary, um, you know, dissonant sounds or sort of not harmonies. They're, you know, contradicting in a lot of ways. So I think that really describes a lot of the food that, you know, chefs are doing around the world and a lot of and the food that I do, you know, the food is has dissonance in it. Um, and I felt that, you know, it, when, he, when he said that about Chopin, he basically meant that, you know, he was so poetic in his playing that you could literally you would it would cause you to emote you would you know you'd be happy and extremely sad and you'd become lethargic or you'd have you know you'd be upbeat like it's his music is really sort of powerful and it also translates into colors um i'm actually doing a main stage demo tomorrow which you're not going to be able to attend which is bullshit yeah. <laughs> um but uh it's basically Exploring, it's called La Révolution Surréaliste, and it explores uh, three different uh, artists: one um, surrealist, one from the Romantic period, one from Abstract Expressionism, and it sort of is a video um, interactive kind of uh, demo where it basically explores how how you know incorporating the elements of surrealism or romanticism or abstract expressionism into food not necessarily just into presentation but also in overall like how you conceive the dish um you know because i mean surrealists were you know they're a group of people and they either believed in what they did or they didn't and they weren't surrealists anymore you know like it's it was sort of a conscious effort and then they use their own creativity to harness it in their own individual ways so um chopin is the romantic that i actually chose for the main stage demo so uh we're gonna see we're gonna see uh it's his part of the demo is based on a conversation between him and delacroix um and one night it was a rainy evening and uh Delacroix was talking to Chopin about how his tones and his music were so deep and vibrant that it often made him think of colors and um, this one particular night a certain way that he did it uh, he started seeing the color blue so there's a a bluish hue to the whole dish um, and you know it's got raindrops represented because it was raining that night and you know it's got kind of a gloomy feel to it Um, so I was basically not it's not a demo exploring like my specific techniques about how I make things it's more about like how I arrived at putting them together sort of trying to get the audience into into moods of of each piece there's three movements you know Um, so it's like 
maybe people will emote a little bit. People might get excited in certain parts and you know feel down a little bit. And at the end, we have this really unbelievable, uh, crushing sort of masterpiece song. Uh, oh, by the way, did I mention that it's all narrated by music? No spoken word to the entire demo. Excellent, excellent. So, I mean, sound, too, uh, often overlooked in food um, from, you know, Rice Krispies popping in your mouth was an inherent sensation while you were a child, and, but there is an ethos and emotion attached to that. So, yeah, using all the senses in the presentation. With, uh, you know, with the, you know, he has a conch shell with an iPod Nano in it, you know, yeah. and, uh, or a shuffle, and you can hear, like, the sound of the sea while you're eating oysters. Like, it's, it's really, really great. I mean, he's probably the, you know, the biggest expert on exploring how to fuck with people's senses I, w- I wouldn't I wouldn't try to <laughs> say that I'm anywhere near where Heston is, is with his research um, but I definitely find it equally as interesting and uh, you know try to find my own way of of showing it to people you know but at the end of the day Jordan also makes delicious food um, opening Red Medicine in LA soon uh, do check him out and thank you for being a guest on the food scene hey man my pleasure thanks for You're listening to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network. Actually, taping off-site uh, at Star Chefs ICC. It's an international culinary congress, and funny enough, or you know, succinctly enough, it's about art versus craft. And I'm here with a old friend, a fantastic chef, uh, Gabriel Bremer of Salts in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who I was lucky enough to know while he was opening up the restaurant in 2004 and got to spend time in the kitchen, even uh, got to do some amuse-bouche, cutting up radishes and I think uh, putting crudo on plates a couple times. So he not only influenced me um, with food, uh, but also aesthetically, his plates are um, Precious, but they're 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 precious in a way not that you don't want to eat them, but precious because you realize how much thought, understanding, and technique goes behind it. Um, we were just listening to a main stage conversation with the likes of Dan Barber, Michael Roman, Thomas Keller, um, David Kinch, and there was a very interesting uh, statement by Thomas Keller saying that you know you have to be a craftsman before you have to be an artist and then Dan Barber followed up talking about Velasquez um, you know an amazing painter who Picasso ended up remaking uh, repainting one of his most famous masterpieces over and over until he got it right and it wasn't until then that Picasso went into his blue phase went into you know uh, more experimental and felt comfortable enough to be himself. Now, how do you feel about the idea of, you know, or the saying, being a craftsman before an artist? Um, I would have to agree fully, and I think as <laughs> putting in my words in a conversation that we had earlier today, um, when we were just speaking, you need to learn to walk before you can run. Um, otherwise, you're just going to trip all over yourself and make a mess. Um, and I think that's almost a big problem that a lot of younger cooks these days, you know, they look at people like Ferran, they look at all the modern cooking techniques and they're like, okay, when do we get to use hydrocolloids? Like, well, first make, make me a hollandaise. Can you do that? Can you break down this fish? 
these are the basics that you need to know. The rest of it is, is icing on the cake. It's ways of reinterpreting um, or reconfiguring or expressing yourself. But if you don't know the fundamentals, what are you expressing? How can you, how can you express anything? It'd be like, you know, as, as you mentioned, Picasso trying to express himself, but he has no paints or no brush. You know, you need the tools before you can create your work which will eventually, I think, turn in to, in some people's case, art. Yeah, and aside from just the tools, too, you need art in your life. And did you grow up around um, much of that influence? Uh, constantly, through all the art forms, through music, which I originally trained 14 years classically. Um, I was supposed to be a percussionist. I even turned down a full scholarship. Um, and then ended up cooking and continuing on this path. Um, but I was constantly exposed to art museums, to theater, to ballet. And I think that shows up as well in the cooking and in what I do at the restaurant. Um, that's transmit transmitted through the plates. And also, as far as my classical training in sort of the running of the kitchen. How, how so do you mean? Um, again, you need to know your basics before you can play. Um, you know, some sometimes I refer to a tasting menu is uh, is kind of the difference between the regular menu is kind of the classical trained. Everything has its place, its purpose. The jazz is almost like our tastings that we get to riff off of it and play. Um, so I constantly still utilize my music background in in the kitchen. So, I mean, do you actually have a, like, Lydian theory or offbeat um, tasting menu? Uh, depends on what people request. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, has music, too, um, aside from just the training of being a percussionist, um, have certain songs influenced a dish? Um, songs... Songs not per se, but certainly in the whole aesthetic of the restaurant, um, the music that we play in the dining room is just as important and is part of the entire atmosphere. So does a certain song inspire a dish? No, but do certain songs together inspire and create the mood of what is our restaurant? Yes. So it's, music isn't just periphery or, you know, these outside idiosyncrasies or touches aren't just you know secondary tertiary things to food i mean it's all encompassing exactly every the smallest detail makes up the biggest back. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, your host of the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network, actually taping off-site at Star Chef's ICC this year, um, the topic being art versus craft, and I'm here with Alex Dupac, the pastry chef at WD50, lauded and known for, uh, well, 
molecular gastronomy, but I think there's a lot more to be understood than just uh, this progressive scientific cooking, especially of Alex's. Uh, knew him when he was in Boston at Clio. Uh, even prior to that, cooking the line at Federalist, or were you just pastry at the Federalist? Uh, no, the Federalist was my first pastry chef job ever, but that was it was also simultaneously my first and last sous chef job ever. Um, I started there as a line cook. I became sous chef uh, two months later, and what had happened is while I was there, uh, they more or less decided to, the upper management decided to fire their pastry chef. Um, before they came up with a game plan of how they were going to fill that position. Um, I really had always kind of had it in the back of my head that I'd like to give pastry a try, and that's when I seized it. I just said, come on, guys, just let me take it over. And I ended up working both jobs for a while, and then what happened was finally they it was easier for them to replace me as and get another sous chef than to find another pastry chef, and that's how I got my first gig doing pastry. And Alex's pastry is actually slightly indescribable uh, in the sense because he's been breaking the mold and I mean that even literally you you know straying away from the ideas of industrial silica and uh, using even PZ, PVC piping to um, make certain dessert elements uh, what was the impetus for that kind of switch. Sure. I mean, in, in terms of using PVC pipe, there, there's very pragmatic reasons for that. At the end of the day, uh, whether we like it or not, pastry chefs are, are slaves to molds because it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. It's a good thing because it's exemplary of what pastry is or what the most meaningful part of it to me, which is that we're actually coming very close to creating new foods. We're creating new forms. Um, but because we're human beings, we're, you know, we're prone to building clunky geometric shapes. We can't make anything as beautiful as a tree or even take it to food. We can't make anything as pretty as a, a leaf or you know, a piece of fish or a piece of meat with these natural organic qualities to it. So we have this tendency to make things into circles and squares and spheres. Um, a part of what I like to do is try to find a way to get away from that. Um, I've never gotten away from it completely. I don't think it's possible. But if I can add an organic element, to, at least one, to a plate to sort of um, wed you know, geometry with just natural anarchy, the, the, the visual part of it becomes uh, a lot more intriguing. As far as PVC piping, I mean, honestly, molds are expensive. Like, yeah. all these pastry molds that people buy at the these from these pastry they're, they're, they're like 10 15 bucks a piece and if you work at anything like the restaurants I work at you, you're going to need 50 or 60 of them for one dessert and, and, and custom molds cost thousands to initially make right oh yeah it's crazy I mean like first you have to commission a designer to make something for you and then you have to pay for it by piece and then you're right back where you started actually worse off you're still paying 10 15 dollars a piece for these things um PVC pipe, you know, I I would call my dad and like you know my first pastry chef job. And I'd be like, hey, can you go to the hardware store and you know, you know, pick up some and cut it to this shape or you know, and he would do it for me. So I mean, it's very very low tech, uh, borderline ghetto mold making, but you know, it was a start. Um, you were just talking to about how it pseudo aligned with art theory or the idea of moving from modernism to post modernism. How can you kind of explain that? Sure. Um, well, again. I'll preface everything by saying, you know, I'm not a art history buff at all, and if anyone's listening, you know, don't hate me. Um, I just bought my first book on uh, on the last 
hundred years of art theory, you know, and I've, I've been trying to penetrate it as best I can. But I, I feel like a lot of um, what I was reading about the transition from um, modern art to postmodern art um, equates to kind of what's happening to cooking right now, or at least personally for me. I feel like um, in the last, you know, 30 years in cooking, the focus has been on developing the new technique, finding the innovation, um, less about the dish or the flavors of it, but finding a way to actually manipulate food that's going to change the way other people do it, which is extremely valid and it's, it's extremely important. But what has happened, I feel, is that it's, it's hit a dead end. Um, a lot of the avenues have been exhausted in that you're not going to find a lot of new chefs out there who are going to create new methodology. I mean, I feel like cooking has changed more in the last 50 years than it has in the last 5,000. And I know there are others out there that agree with me. Um, and, it, and what I'm reading, you know, in these in these art books I'm buying is that th this happened. This happened in the art world already. And it's simultaneously depressing but also reassuring and inspiring for me because it's, it's not our fault. You know, these avenues are going to, you know, you're going to hit a dead end. Um, but then, you know, it, it just seems like, you know, when you breach into the postmodern mentality, things become a lot more pure. Because, you know, to put it simply, you can do whatever the hell you want. It doesn't matter anymore. As long as the art is beautiful, it's okay. As long as the food is delicious, it's okay. So what's an example of a do-whatever-the-hell-you-want dish that you have on the menu right now or hoping to introduce to WD's menu? Um, well, here's a, here's a simple idea of something I've done that just kind of bridges the gap. Um, you know, in pastry, it was really hot for a while to come up with an ice cream that had a very unexpected flavor. You know, people began incorporating vegetables or, you know, savory items into their ice creams, and that threw everyone for a loop. And I just did this as a test. Um, I just put this out there in the restaurant to kind of um, prove the fact that sometimes it's not just the picture you paint, but what frame you put it in. Um, I pretty much decided that the craziest flavor ice cream I could ever serve at WD-50 was vanilla. So I served vanilla ice cream. Um, and I was right. That's what threw people for a loop. Um, to take it further, the dish wasn't just vanilla ice cream. It was vanilla ice cream that was uh, served, uh, rolled in a raspberry streusel, and it had uh, balsamic vinegar at its center. And the funny thing about that is that it comes off as a flavor pairing that's innovative enough for a restaurant like WD-50. But honest to God, the flavor pairing came from a conversation I had with my wife. My wife's a pastry chef. Uh, she's a pastry sous chef at the time at Babo. And every summer when they get strawberries in season, they serve them with ice cream and some good balsamic vinegar drizzled on it. But it becomes funny to me because if you serve a dish like that, at Babo, it's perceived as classic Italian because that's where you're eating. But if I take that dish and serve it in a slightly different way at WD-50, people are, you know, lauding it as innovative. And is it? Maybe, maybe not. But it, it comes. who's making the dish? Maybe the judgment is biased. Yeah, well, maybe breaking the mold is breaking methodology. Yeah. You know, switching that up and it anew on a plate rather than creating new crazy flavor combinations. Yeah. I mean, again, there, there's so many avenues towards creativity, and but I think my point is that I feel like the perception of what creativity is, is it's changing for me personally. Thanks, Alex.
You're listening to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Tercal, and we're actually taping on site today from Star Chefs ICC at the what is this? The Armory uh, Park Armory Ave. Park Avenue Armory, and I'm here with Chris and Murray, a dear old friend. Actually, met at Number Nine Park in Boston when she was pastry chef, and have always been inspired and blown away by her work. Um, most specifically, can't get out of my mind this uh, this brioche sassafras. It's the um, sassafras brioche croustillant, and I think it was with red currants and a goat's milk ice cream, actually. Yeah. And I don't know what it was. I mean, it was, well, it's not very common elements, but it was so comforting and, like, felt not safe, but like uh, a warm hug, almost, um, in this way that she constructs dishes that have elements that you're used to, um, but don't necessarily come from the food world to be influenced. Are there any outside, you know, artists or uh, mediums that inspire you to put these dishes together? Oh, God. Um, I think we were talking earlier, and just I love um, Kadinsky, just the lines and just the visual is really striking and the color um, Miro was always a big draw when you're talking about the crustillant I'm thinking of the sassafras there was a woman Eva that would passionately she was very eccentric um, and call very breathy when we talked about herbs but I always had this visual of her which was very renaissance almost or just ripping these huge sassafras roots out of the ground and I'd get so much can I uh, I can't curse uh, yeah you can okay. <laughs> I would get so much shit because yeah. basically all this dirt would get everywhere when she brought them in but it was so raw and beautiful and I think um, kind of trying to take pastry from such an earth based where it's not just seasonal but you're really just appreciating the art of the ground or the air sea whatever is around um, uh, what else so I mean it's nature and natural forms that, that Moreau and Kadinsky that were using that kind of influence the foods and the plating yeah but it's also um I mean, just being back in New York and how industrial and fantastic and dirty it is. It's just, um, I've been playing with cocoa powder lately and pressing different shaped things into it to do um, faux chocolate casting. And I love how you think of chocolate showpieces, and they're normally these ornate, really finicky, bright, um, non-edible masses. which I guess would be something very Baroque. Um, And I love that I'm kind of doing something that feels very uh, Latin American or or African, where it's just so wild and earthy and cocoa-y, and then you get to etch in the little detailing. And I think I took an old nail file that I never used (laughs) and a makeup brush, and ended up really just kind of whittling and chiseling. There's an amazing artist that I'm blanking on that's from Belgium that does chocolate sculpture. And his last name starts with a P. But um, he's been a big inspiration lately um, to me. Um, So aside from worldly ingredients, it seems like you're getting into uh, worldly cultures that influence your work, uh, citing, you know, Africa and, you know, this this artist himself. Um, What kind of cultures are you looking at for, aside from eccentric ingredients, um, but inspiration? Mm, I've always kind of been a food history geek. Um, I 
studied art history like we talked about, but oftentimes after I would talk to farmers, I would read food history books and then get true inspiration out of that. Um, Spain has always been a big one, but um, Africa and, and, and islands and just things that are kind of tribal and wild and, and um, not precious or uh, endeared as of yet. Um, but it's more, that, it's kind of funny because I, I picture those places as where the majority of raw ingredients come from. And I don't mean raw like raw food, but more so, you know, cacao or coffee. And Yeah, well, there was a woman, um, the vanilla sponsor here was talking about how uh, Madagascar vanilla is now taking on a lot of cacao properties because there are more plantations that are being planted. And so I think just like any good butter, milk um, ingredient, it really takes from the source. So, um, But I'm inspired by pretty much just about everything. I could be inspired by a small ant crawling across the floor. If he had a funny walk or something, I would think about a crazy twill to do that would be his jaunt. Um, yeah, it's hard to not get inspired by everything that's around and want to translate it into a way that's not obvious but interesting.